Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Paul's writing to this church at Galatia, which was troubled on many different fronts. One of the great struggles and problems they had facing them was the introduction in their church, they're coming in among them, of teachers who wanted to put them under bondage to the Mosaic Law. They wanted to define their Christianity by keeping a list of rules, by undergoing certain ceremonies such as circumcision, and basically living under the Mosaic Law. That's how you would demonstrate that you were a good Christian. And one of the great arguments that legalism has always used is that if you don't have legalism, if you don't keep the list of rules right in front of everybody's face and tell them that God's going to reject them if they don't keep the list, if you don't do that, then everybody's just going to go out and sin, and, and well, it's going to be the works of the flesh, just like you saw there in verses 19 through 21. Wasn't that an ugly list? Last week, we spent quite a bit of time going through that list word by word, and it's almost unpleasant to talk about each one of those sins and what they mean, and how they apply to our lives. But as I said last week, it's almost mandatory that if you were here last week, you need to come this week. Because studying piece by piece the works of the flesh, that's only part of the story. Paul continues on very plainly into verse 22, where he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and then he goes on to tell us about the fruit of the Spirit. I love the order that the Holy Spirit has in the Scriptures. He describes to us first the works of the flesh, then the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you know all too well by your life, by your experience, the works of the flesh, but that's the past. Now, let's start walking in the Spirit. Let's see the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh seem overwhelming. They seem overwhelming around us in the culture that we live in. They seem overwhelming in us. But friends, God is good enough, God is big enough to change everything with the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit can always conquer over the works of the flesh. The devil's not stronger than God. The flesh is not stronger than the Spirit. The the works of the flesh can take a second place to the glorious fruit of the Spirit. And I love how he words it here. He could have said the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, but he doesn't. He could have said the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit, but he doesn't. It's the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Works is works and fruit is fruit. And fruit has several important characteristics. You know, fruit isn't achieved by working. It's birthed by abiding. Fruit is fragile. Fruit reproduces itself. Fruit's attractive, fruit nourishes, and that's the precious fruit of the Spirit. 
that God wants to birth and bring out in a beautiful way in our life. It's also interesting to see here that when he was describing the works of the flesh, he used the plural, right? He didn't say the work of the flesh is evident, which are, he said the works. But when it comes down to fruit, he says the fruit of the spirit, and he uses the singular for fruit. Now, I know in the English language, that word fruit can either be singular or plural, but in the original language that Paul wrote in, it's an ancient form of the Greek language. In that original language, he used the singular word. He's talking about the singular fruit of the spirit. So he uses the, the, the plural describing life after the flesh, but he uses the singular talking about the life after the spirit. You see, in the big picture, the Holy Spirit has one work to do in all of us. I can look at every one of you here this morning and say, I know what the Lord wants to do in your life. He wants to bring out love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all through the list. I know it. It's not any different for you than for you or for you than for them. It's all the same. You see, these aren't like gifts of the Spirit distributed individually to each one. You might look at this list and say, well, you know, I don't have any long-suffering, but that's okay. I'm big on peace. No! No, it's a single fruit of the Spirit. It's like a cluster of fruit. It's like a cluster of grapes. And God says, here, I want you to take this whole cluster. The works of the flesh are different. I don't know if there's anybody ever been guilty of every one of those works of the flesh. As Some people have probably tried, but you got all of them there together. You know, one person may do one, another person does another, but it's not that way with the fruit of the Spirit. It's in the singular. We're all collect. Each one of us is to have every one of these qualities in our lives. So what are the qualities? What is it? What is the fruit of the Spirit? What's the outgrowth? What's the, the product of the Spirit of God in our lives? What's it going to look like when somebody's walking in the Spirit? Verse 22 here, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. Isn't it fitting that, that, that love is the first one mentioned? You could say that love encompasses all of the following. That love is the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says, now let me define what love is. Love is, as he says there in verse 22, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. You could do it that way. You could say love refers to the whole cluster, and then, then Paul goes on and picks out individual pieces of it. It would have been enough for him just to mention love. He's kind enough to go on and explain more. But Oh, how much is encompassed in that one word, love. How I wish we could really understand what Paul meant when he wrote that word love. He used a specific word in the ancient Greek language, the word agape. Now, our English language is somewhat limited in its vocabulary. This ancient Greek language that Paul wrote in had a far larger vocabulary than the English language. Whereas we use one word for love to apply to a lot of different things. I love my friends. I love my wife. I love a double-double from in and out You know, you use it interchangeably, right? Now, they had a far more precise way of speaking in this ancient Greek language that Paul wrote in. Matter of fact, they had four different words for love. And three of them are used in the New Testament. The, the, the first word that they had in, in this ancient is, is the word eros. It, it's the word that we get our word erotic from. It's the word for romantic or passionate love. And another word, 
Phileia, that was the word for the love that we have for those near and dear to us, whether they're family or friends. And then the third word is storge, and that's the word of love for affection and care, like the loving affection that a mother has for a child. Now, every one of those three words has something in common about love. They all speak of love that's felt in the heart. It's love that that kind of emanates from the heart. You feel it. And when we talk about love in our modern culture, isn't that what we mean? We mean love that you feel from the heart. You know, it's just either you love somebody or you don't, right? Either that feeling's there or it's not. Either you love this or you don't love it. I mean, that's, that's just kind of the way we talk about love. The word Paul uses here in the ancient Greek language for the fruit of the Spirit is love is in any one of those three words. He uses that word agape, which is a different kind of love. It has more to do with the mind and the will than it does with the heart. You see, somebody could say, I don't feel any phileia love towards you. And you say, okay, I understand, because phileia love's about feeling. You know, you feel that attachment. But if you were to say, I don't feel any agape love towards them, Paul would look at you in the eye and say, what's that got to do with it? Agape love isn't about feelings. Who cares? You're either going to decide that you're going to love this person this way, or you're not. Your feelings don't really have to enter into the matter. That's what this kind of love is. William Barclay, a great Greek scholar, wrote this. He says, agape love means unconquerable benevolence. It means that no matter what a man may do to us by way of insult or injury or humiliation, we will never seek anything else but his highest good. It is therefore a feeling of the mind as much as the heart. So you see where, where you've had your struggle in your Christian life? Somebody mistreats you and you've been trying to conjure up warm feelings towards them. Why? Don't even worry about the warm feelings. Act in a loving way towards them. Decide to act in a loving way. When you make this love a slave to the warm feelings in your heart, you're always going to be limited in your ability to love, aren't you? But when you say, no, my warm feelings don't even matter. I'm going to decide to act in a loving way. And friends, isn't that a love of the Spirit? You see, it's above and beyond natural affection. Natural affection works that way, right? You love me, I love you, right? It works together. It's easy to love the people that we love. It's easy to love the people who love us. But this kind of love, it's beyond natural affection. It's beyond loyalty to blood or to family. It's loving people who aren't easy to love. It's loving people that you don't even like. But you love them. That's agape love. Friends, doesn't that change the way we think about things? You get angry because somebody's treating you badly. And then you you think about what you can do to to set them straight, to get them right in the matter, right? Well, just remember this text. The fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love. You say, ah, but wait a minute. You don't know how they treated me. It was just shameful how they treated me. Well, of course it was shameful. And that's why you shouldn't imitate it. No, instead, don't return evil for evil, but give blessing instead. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love. 
Isn't it beautiful too? When we understand this, we understand that the works of the flesh that we read in verses 19, 20, and 21, the works of the flesh are all a violation of this particular fruit of the Spirit. I mean, every one of the works of the flesh is a violation or a perversion of this great love. He reads off adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness. Those are counterfeits of love, right? They masquerade as love, but nobody operating in true love ever committed those sins. They used to have idolatry and sorcery. Those are counterfeits of love to God. You don't really love God when you're seeking Him in idolatrous ways. You have all those interpersonal sins that he mentioned, hatred, contentions, heresies, envies, all the rest. Those are all opposites of love, right? They are contradictory to love. Then you have the sad case in verse 21 of drunkenness and revelries. Aren't those sad attempts to fill the void that only love can fill? You see, friends, it all comes back to this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, God knows we need more of a detailed description, even though that should be enough. And so he goes on to explain. He also says that the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is joy. Do you really believe that? That the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life is joy. I I say, do you believe it? Because I think one of the greatest marketing strategies ever employed has been to position the kingdom of Satan as the place where the fun is and the kingdom of God as the place of gloom and misery. You got it. Satan knows what he's doing with marketing strategy. I'll tell you that. He knows how to spin this web to make people think this. But the the, the fruit of the Spirit isn't gloom. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And it's a joy of the Spirit. It's a higher joy than you can get just from a fun day at Disneyland or a wonderful set of circumstances or a series of, of fun events. No, it's a joy that can abide and remain. It's a joy that's there even when the circumstances are terrible. Paul knew this kind of joy. I think of Paul in the Philippian prison. Remember that? He's in a dungeon, in a hole in the ground. His feet and his hands are enchained. He's probably in a painful position. And at midnight, he and Titus decide to do what? They start, well, they start singing praises to God. God sent an earthquake and freed them from their shackles. And it was a beautiful thing. But Paul was singing before the earthquake. That was a joy that was a fruit of the Spirit. Anybody can have joy when everything's going great. This joy that he talks about, this is a a fruit of the Spirit. Not only that, take a look at the next word. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Now that means peace with God, and it means peace with people, and I think it means peace inside of us too. And it's a positive peace. It's filled with blessing and goodness. You know, a lot of times we use the word peace in the sense of just being an absence of fighting. That's not the way the Bible uses it. When the Bible uses the word peace, it means a positive good. And it's a peace of the Spirit that Paul talks about here. A peace higher than what comes just when everything's calm and settled. As Paul said in Philippians, it's a peace of God which surpasses all understanding. For the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace. But it's also about how we treat other people, right? And that's long-suffering. That's a tough one, isn't it? You know what long-suffering is? It means that you're not quickly annoyed or irritated with other people. That you've got a thick skin. 
It takes more than the slightest offense or irritation to make you lash out. No. No, you, you have love, you have joy, and you have peace over a long period of time, even when people annoy you. It's not easy, is it? That's a work of the Spirit of God, isn't it? That's the kind of quality that enables a person to bear adversity, to bear injury, to bear insults, and makes them patient with other people. You know, I think Satan knows that this is a tough thing for us, and so Satan specializes in grinding us down over a period of time. You, you may be settled, right? You may be the most walkinest in the spiritist person among us here this morning. Everybody's going, wow. Well, let me, how quick does it take you to get you out of that? Where's the long suffering? Can you suffer long with other people, or do you have that short fuse? Now, here's the great foundation for long suffering in our life. God's long-suffering towards us. Some people don't think that God has long-suffering. They, they have the wrong picture in their eyes. They, have the, they serve the God of the really thin skin. No, my friends, God loves you. He's long-suffering towards you. He's patient and merciful towards you. You may feel that you've done God a, a thousand wrongs this morning. You know, He's ready to receive you with open arms. He just stands for you and says, I'm long-suffering towards you. Goes on, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long suffering. Then he lists two that I'll read together because they're really linked together kindness and goodness. And that's just what they mean to be kind, to be good. When somebody's walking in the Spirit, when they have the fruit of the Spirit coming out of their lives, you look at their lives and there's a kindness there, there's a goodness there. The idea there is of a generosity, of a helpfulness, of someone who gives out to others. You know when you're kind to others? When you're good to others? Do you know what it means? It means you don't walk around just thinking of yourself all the time. You're thinking about them. If you're all absorbed in your own life and your own problems, somebody's walking along and they drop something, you don't even notice. You don't kindly help them. You don't do a good thing towards them and help them. You're so engrossed in your own problems. What do you have time for them for? But when you take your eyes off yourself and live an others-centered life like Jesus did, then your life can be filled with kindness and be filled with goodness. And that's a fruit of the Spirit that the Lord wants to work in your life. Was there ever a person who walked this earth who was more kind and who was more good than Jesus Christ? No, he exemplified every one of the fruit of the Spirit. Going on here, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. That's the work of the Spirit of God to develop in us faithfulness to God and faithfulness to other people. It's reliability. You, know, you can trust God. You can rely on God. Can God rely on you? Can God trust you? Can other people trust you? Can you be as faithful as the sunrise and the sunset? People just know you're there. That's faithfulness. That's a work of the Spirit of God. It goes now on to verse 23 where he mentions gentleness. That's a precious word. In the original language, some of your translations may have the word meekness. Because really, that's the idea there. It's the word having the idea of a, of a teachable heart. Someone who doesn't have an attitude of superiority over others. They're not out demanding their own rights. Now, it's not timidity. It's not passiveness. 
It's the kind of person who knows when to make the stand and when not to make the stand, when to let it go. They're always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. That's gentleness. That's meekness. That's the kind of heart, the kind of spirit that doesn't walk around with a chip on its shoulder, demanding its proper respect from other people. They must give me my proper respect. I don't know if we'd really like it if we got our proper respect, to tell you the truth. If God were to give us our proper respect, I think it would get very hot all of a sudden. No, no. Friends, we need to remember the gentleness, the the meekness of Jesus Christ. Not out there self-promoting, demanding his own way, demanding his own rights, but simply with the wonderful, loving authority of God living his life. And finally, he says, verse 23, in this list of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. You know, the world knows something of self-control, doesn't it? I mean, turn of the year, everybody goes to the gym, everybody goes on the diets, you got the athlete, you know, he he punishes his body, he works out very hard. But the self-control that the world knows is almost always self-focused. It's self-control in a selfish way. You know, I'll sacrifice this so I can have this greater glory. Now, I believe that the Lord wants to give us at least that much self-control, but even go beyond that to give us a self-control that operates for the good of other people. For example, the self-control that says, I'll stop my tongue when I have that comment to make that I don't need to make. I mean, why inflict that on somebody else? That's self-control, isn't it? But it's not exercised selfishly. So look at this beautiful cluster of fruit here. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Friends, that's the profile of the healthy Christian life. That's how you can tell when a person or when a church is really walking in the Spirit, when the Spirit of God is really moving. Many people oftentimes look for outward things to determine how the Spirit is working and how the Spirit is moving. There's a multitude of gifts that the Holy Spirit can distribute and use at any one time. And, and they say, well, you know, here's prophecy or here's tongues or, or, or here's some other marvelous gift. And well, that must prove to us that the Holy Spirit's working. No, I'll tell you, those are just the tools that the Holy Spirit uses in the toolkit. And you don't look to whether or not a person has tools to see if the job's done. You look to see if the job's done. Well, here's the fruit. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's how you can tell the Holy Spirit's moving. That's how you can tell someone's filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. You look at their life and, well, here's the fruit of the Spirit. This is it. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us, through us. You know what's beautiful? It all comes around, keeps coming back to Jesus, doesn't it? You want to describe Jesus. I mean, well, what kind of man was Jesus? He was a man filled with love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Haven't you just given a beautiful description of Jesus? Now, if somebody were to say, what kind of person are you? Could those same words be used to describe you? The Holy Spirit wants to develop that in your life. He wants these words to come to people's mind when others describe you. He wants this to be the fruit out of your life. It can happen. You look at this and you shake your head and say, no, no. 
I'm more back in the works of the flesh than I am here in the fruit of the Spirit. God wants to change that, doesn't he? God wants to do a work by his word, through his Spirit, in your life. Have a beautiful harvest of this fruit of the Spirit. You know why? Because, well, look at it there, verse 23. Against such there is no law. You want to fulfill the law? Then let the Holy Spirit work his fruit through you. Do you have to wave the Ten Commandments in front of somebody whose life is marked by all these things? No. They're living it already. It's flowing out of their life. They don't need the law. The law is given to lawbreakers. The law is given to people who who break the law. They, They need to have it waved in front of their face. No, here, here, these are people that the Lord is working in their life. The fruit of the Spirit's flowing out. So it's a beautiful, beautiful statement Paul makes. Against such there is no law. Now, we read that, and it might seem kind of pie in the sky. You say, well, Pastor David, you don't know. You don't know how hard it is to deal with the flesh. I mean, I got the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, and I'm all for the fruit of the Spirit. I want it, you want it, we all want it. But you don't know how hard it is. Well, Paul knows how hard it is. And that's why he gives us a prescription for what to do with our flesh. If you were asking Paul, well, okay, Paul, I know I want to live this way, I want to walk this way, but my flesh gets in the way. What do I do? He'd look at you and he'd say, here's what you do with your flesh. Crucify it. Look at it there, verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. God has a place for our flesh with all of its passions and desires. He wants us to nail it to his cross so that it may be under control and under the sentence of death. And he used the word crucified. Now, Paul could have just used the word killed, right? But he didn't. He used the word crucified because it means many things. First of all, it reminds us of what Jesus did on the cross for us, right? Secondly, it reminds us of Jesus' call that we are to take up our cross and follow him. But it also reminds us of something else. Reminds us that the death of the flesh is often painful. If it doesn't hurt, I don't think you're dying to the flesh. If it doesn't hurt, I don't think you're dying to self. It's going to hurt. Nobody ever hung on a cross with a great big smile on their face. It's hard. It hurts. But the other thing that makes this image so vivid is that a crucified man would hang on a cross for a long time. Still alive. I mean, a person could hang on a cross for days before they died. Jesus was an unusual case. Jesus died fairly quickly. If you remember, the Gospels tell us that Pilate was surprised that Jesus had died so quickly. And they asked for confirmation. That's why they stuck the spear in his side. They said, well, why did Jesus die so quickly? Why didn't he die like most people on the cross? A long, long extended death. Well, simply put, Jesus, when he finished his work on the cross of paying for our sins, of being that substitute in our place... He didn't see any need to, pardon the expression, hang around any longer. And he just, he gave his spirit to God and it's finished, it's done, let's go. Jesus was no masochist. He wasn't there just just on the cross for, you know, just to endure the pain. No, to accomplish a work. And when the work is done, well then let's move on. But no, typically, typically, there's the flesh hanging on the cross still alive Yet powerless, right? What power does a man on the cross have? 
There you are. Can you do that this morning? Can you, in your heart, in your mind, take your flesh with its passions and desires, one by one, grip the, the nail in your hand and drive it to the cross. And there it is, hanging on the cross there. And then your flesh says, hey, why don't you go do this? You look up and why? He's on the cross. He's alive. He can still speak to you. You say, you can't make me do that. You're hanging up on the cross. You have no power over me. You've got a voice. You can speak to me. But you have no power over me. You're up on that cross. And that's where you're going to stay. You're not going to have power over me. You're not going to have dominion over me. No, he's nailed to the cross. He's alive, hanging there, yet powerless over us. And when we die in our bodies, then that flesh is going to die and we're going to be raised again in a resurrection body that will have no more sinful flesh in it. Until that day, there's the, the fleshly man hanging up on the cross. But God says, notice it very carefully, my friends. Verse 24 Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. Whose job is it to crucify the flesh? It's your job. This very definitely speaks of something that the believer does. Now, the believer doesn't do it apart from God. The believer doesn't do it, you know, without the empowering and the working of God. But if you're just standing around saying, okay, Lord, anytime you want to crucify the flesh in me, he's saying, no, this is something you decide to do in the cooperation of your will with my will. Let's do it. Let's crucify the flesh. And you notice it here, it says in verse 24, with its passions and desires. Friends, do you realize the liberty in this, that in Jesus Christ, you can live above the passions and the desires of your flesh. We all know the sinful flesh inside of us has passions, it has desires, but we don't need to be enslaved to them. The resources for us are there in Jesus Christ. We can look to Him, we can see our life in Him. If you are one of those who are Christ, right? Verse 24, those who are Christ, then you belong to him. You don't belong to the world. You don't even belong to yourself. And you certainly don't belong to your passions and your desires. Your life is hid in Jesus Christ. So you don't have to be a slave to your passions and desires anymore. You know what we do with people who are totally given over to the passions and the desires of their flesh? We're totally enslaved. We lock them up in jail. The passion, the desire to strike out violently at somebody is in you. If you can't control it, you're going to end up in jail. The passion, the desire for for greed to have, to possess, is strong in you. If you can't control it, then you're going to steal, you're going to rob, and you're going to end up in jail. Now that's the most extreme Friends, there are a lot of people in prisons of their own making because of the passions and the desires of the flesh. Jesus Christ looks to you with all the compassion in his heart this morning and says, it doesn't have to master you. You can live over it. The power of my spirit is stronger than the power of your flesh. You can have a new kind of life, a different kind of life. You don't have to be a slave to your passions and desires anymore. Flesh doesn't have to run your life. You know it's in you. It doesn't have to run your life. You can live on a higher principle. A higher principle is walking in the Spirit. Look at it there, verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. What a glorious statement there. He says you've got life in the Spirit. He's given you life. 
And if right now today you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you have life in the Spirit of God, then the Lord looks and says, okay, I've given you life by my Spirit. Now why don't you walk in the Spirit? Why, it would just be bad manners. It'd be rude of us to say, Lord, give me the life of the Spirit, but I don't want to walk in the Spirit. Just give me the life. No, he says, have the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. And the specific word he uses there means to to be in line with, to walk in line with. He's saying, keep in step with the Spirit. Friends, that's what the Lord wants you to do this morning. He's following, right? Giving you the path. You keep in step with the Spirit. Follow after Him. And I think it's wonderful how he concludes there in verse 26. Did you notice that? Here's like a a dangerous result, or potential result, I should say. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Don't you see here how, how the devil loves to work in this? Here you have some child of God finally walking in the Spirit. Isn't it glorious? The fruit of the Spirit's beginning to bud in their life. And you can see it there. There's love, joy, and peace. And oh, I saw some long-suffering there. Whoa, there's some gentleness. It's just beautiful. There they're walking in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit's there. Then the devil comes along and tempts them to become conceited about it. Soon... They're pretty much sure that they're always right and everybody else is always wrong. After all, I walk in the Spirit, brother. And so you become conceited. Conceited simply means that that you're always sure that you're right. And by extension, anybody disagrees with you, well, they must be wrong. When you have that conceited kind of attitude, it comes in you gradually. That's why Paul says, verse 26, let us not become conceited. It's something you grow into subtly. But no, if you're conceited, there's trouble there. You're going to be, number one, you're going to be provoking one another. Why? Because you're going to go around with that attitude that you're always right. You don't have that humbleness to say, well, you know, maybe I'm wrong on this. The Lord will show. That's all right. Let's move on. No, you don't have that attitude. It's like, no, I'm right. I walk in the Spirit. That's all there is to it. You know, that's going to provoke other people. It's going to rub them the wrong way. It's going to be the source of many conflicts. So Paul says, don't go there. You're walking in the Spirit, stay there. Don't become conceited, because it leads to provoking one another, and then it leads to what? It leads to envying one another. See, when we're conceited, we're also open to the sin of envy. Because then pretty soon you find out someone's more right or more successful than you are, and you resent it, and you envy them. Paul says, no, no. You're walking in the Spirit, you're doing well. Don't become conceited. Don't begin to envy others. Friends, the Holy Spirit's laid out a beautiful path in front of us for how we can walk free and live free in Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, it's centered around. It's centered around this idea of following after Jesus, of keeping in step with the Spirit. That's how Paul began the section in verse 16. That's how he ends it at the end of the section. But how can you do it? There's so many distractions. There's so many things that would just lead us off from this walk in the Spirit. Well, last week... uh, man in our church family suggested to me a wonderful illustration of this, of something that, that he had seen, of, of dog training. And there's this final aspect of this training of these dogs. They, they would sit the dog out in the open field and tell him to sit down and to stay, and the dog would do that. Then what they would do is they would try to deliberately distract the dog. And for the, the final distraction, what they would do is they would send out scores, maybe even a hundred rabbits out into the empty field. 
rabbits scurrying everywhere. What dog cannot resist chasing around a rabbit? Dog just stayed there motionless. What self-control? You say, man, I wish I had as much fruit of the Spirit as that dog did. Wow, I mean, just sitting there. You know, it's amazing. What amazing self-control. You know, every fiber of that dog's being wants to run off and chase those rabbits. And, well, how is he not doing it? He said, it's very simple. If you looked at the dog, what the dog did was the dog just kept his eyes focused on the master. The master just kept his eyes focused there on the dog. Eyes focused in the right place. The distractions just didn't matter so much. Because the dog kept that eye contact, the focus upon the master. Friends, you do that. You fix your eyes on Jesus. Suddenly it becomes a lot easier to walk in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit begins to be evident in your life. You're not running after the distractions of the works of the flesh, but it's essential that you keep your eyes on Jesus, on the master. Let him do that work in you. Maybe this is a morning for some of you, a turning point for you. Maybe you never really yielded or surrendered your life to Jesus Christ the way you should. But you you want this to be different. You you want God to do this work in your life. This could be your morning to make this kind of decision for Jesus Christ. So you'll have the opportunity. You can come to him right now in the quiet place of your own heart and give him your life. So let's pray and, and ask God to do this work in us.